Paperman meets up to... Coming up on the Media Project, a half hour of conversation with Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and me, Rex Smith. We'll be talking about the TikTok war, how social media is influencing coverage of what's going on in Ukraine. And we'll talk about this notion of getting 50,000 new journalists in America, in local communities. What might it take? Well, we'll get into that. Join us for those topics and a lot more on The Media Project. It's coming up next. They wallow in corruption. Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime, and gore. Think of the Media Project as a conversation among a bunch of veteran journalists about <laughs> what's going on, a veteran being the euphemism for aged. Anyway, <laughs> here we are, folks. Welcome to the Media Project, a half hour of conversation and commentary on recent media issues. I'm Rex Smith, here with Judy Patrick, Rosemary Armeo, and Dr. Alan Shartok. And we invite you to share media at WAMC.org if you have some thoughts for us. So how about that? Alan, how are you doing? You going to make it today? Uh, just about. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to see what we can do. So I want to talk about something you know a lot about, TikTok. Uh, uh, yeah. It's sort of like Shartok. Uh, sh- very much. <laughs> I'd love to see Shartok on TikTok. Yeah, there you go. So this is being talked about as the TikTok war. What do you think is the impact of the fact that so much of the information about the war uh, in Ukraine is being delivered by social media. People have direct access to this information, not even going through journalists anymore. Well, it's true. And you know that in Russia, formerly known as the Soviet Union, they have tried like crazy to limit the amount of social media that people are getting. That's what happens when you get a dictatorship. You know, the control of information, whether it's the press or any other way, is really quite important to the masters of those systems. So sometimes you can't do it. Sometimes there are lots of ways that people get around it. And apparently this has been one way that it's been going on here. You know, Rosemary, I'm interested. You have worked in that part of the world, and I just wonder if part of the resiliency that we're seeing in the response to the attack is just part of the way of life. Yeah, I've been speaking to Bosnians who, of course, feel very connected to Ukrainians right now. They were in the same situation in the mid-'90s when their city was under siege by Bosnian Serbs. 
and they do feel this great affinity. They're complimenting on their resilience. They're sending words of encouragement. And there's also a bit of jealousy. Is that the right word? Because in Bosnia, it's the same situation, yet you did not have the world rallying around Bosnians. And what's the difference? Was it a prejudicial thing? Because you're talking Muslims under attack as opposed to nice, blonde, blue-eyed you know, whites in Ukraine. Or is it because they didn't have cell phones and they didn't have cameras and they couldn't immediately get on TikTok and Twitter and send out pictures of bodies in the street and smoldering ruins and people crying over their burnt out houses. All the same thing, but the reaction was completely different. There is still room for professional journalists, lots of room in this war because it's so different from all the other ones. It isn't in the street where you're kind of competing for the person suffering the most colorfully to do a feature story on it, but it's about cryptocurrency being used to both aid the Russians and the Ukrainians. What's that about? And its impact on the financial markets and its cyber attacks. That's where the journalism is needed. How about the agencies that are collecting money? Are they all fraudulent or, or real? How do you know? So there's lots of room for professional reporting, less so, though, in the street where the people can tell their own stories now. Mm-hmm. But Rosemary, just so I understand what you're saying here, it is really the alternatives that I think Rex's question is trying to get to. In other words, are we seeing an alternative media being developed that is potent? Not being developed. It's there. This, the coverage of this war is markedly different. Even from 2014, when there was another invasion in Ukraine, when the Russians went in there, you did not have this. And yes, we've had video and we've had Instagram and all that, but this is instantly. You're watching CNN reporters with smoke rising from the rubble yeah, behind yeah. them. It's immediate. You are there. And I know we've been saying this, actually. I teach it since, you know, Maury Safer was in uh, Vietnam and he was sending back pictures of American troops torching Vietnamese villages, but it was black and white, and it was at night, one time, and it's now pervasive. My kids in school, you know, I complain here often about how they're totally uninterested. Many of them are glued to their computers watching this. They're they're involved. Yeah, you actually are seeing on TikTok the shooting that's going on at that moment. Judy Patrick, you know, I'm interested in an analysis that we read coming into this program about word choices that for journalists in Ukraine, think about the words that journalists are using. Let me just use an example here. If you were writing about America, a foreign journalist writing about America, this phrase, elites cluster in the coastal metropolitan areas of this economically stratified country. That's us, you know, and, and <laughs> if we were to write, if people writing about Ukraine have to think about this. Especially reporters, we bring our biases to what we cover or how we view the news reports. And you see this a lot. What you have to do as reporters, one of the things I always caution them was to consider your adjectives. Just use very active verbs, active sentences, and really think about how the people you were covering will feel about what you're writing. And think about how you would write this if you were writing about your hometown. Um, it's so interesting to see how the perceptions of the Ukrainian invasion have veered from other invasions that we have covered in the past. On the issue of TikTok and Twitter, I am finding myself more and more going to those platforms for coverage of this war. But what it is, is it, it's scattered. It's not cohesive. It lacks the context. Twitter can offer you a thread. So a thread is a series of tweets that can give you a story, but you have to wade through it. The other thing about, you know, Twitter and TikTok and Facebook, it's the ultimate crowdsource of this conflict. But 
it's full of misinformation as well. Mm -hmm. And you really have to decide with every tweet to like or retweet or even to consider true or not what the source is and whether it's been vetted. In many cases, this is misinformation on both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm so fascinated by the context of all of this. In the Soviet Union, not Russia, but in the old Soviet Union, if somebody started up, they would be taken away in chains. And still are. Yeah, there is still enough of it, but it's not universal. There is something since that country has changed from the old Soviet Union to the expectation of democracy. Because that was there, and then along comes this guy, Putin, and now we're going back in the other direction. So there's a whole bunch of contextual stuff. For example, you see a CNN reporter standing out in front of a building that has just been bombed. Would that have been allowed in the old days for the people you consider, you know, either your friends or your enemies to be doing that kind of thing? That, that has changed. Until the um, Persian Gulf and Iraq War, we never went into the land of the enemy. There was no reporting from Japan or Germany on American media exactly. during World War II. And you're right, it does lack context, but I would maintain that when we had embedded soldiers, that lacked context, too. They were young people totally excited to be at war and out with the soldiers. We didn't get a real view of it. And what's lacking that now we have, think of the Rwandan War. 1994, a million people were killed in four months. There's not a single photo of it. Mm -hmm. The horror of that cannot be described in words, where you have piles of bodies and craziness rolled, and it didn't capture anybody. Within six months, Rwanda was being told to, oh, look forward and forget about the past. And that's why, because there's no documentation of it. Now it's there. Yeah. It's very powerful. You know what else is going to happen soon? I think we're going to have an awareness of the danger that the journalists are facing behind the enemy lines as you put this out. And it's not that journalists aren't in that situation all the time. Ernie Pyle in World War II, of course. And I even remember when I was in Central America during the Civil War in El Salvador, we used masking tape to put TV on the side of our cars. We weren't TV, but people understood what that meant. And supposedly journalists weren't being shot down there. In those days, everybody believed that journalists were their ticket to getting their word out. Nowadays, it's really dangerous. That's like putting a bull's mark on your... Yeah, a bullseye on your... So, Rosemary, when we look at the comparison between what's happening here, what happened in Rwanda... Is race important? Uh, I I find that a really fascinating part of the story. You know, Malcolm Nance brought that up on WAMC. This is a war, he says, that's going to have great reaction because the West does not react well to little white babies bloodied in the street. And indeed, we already are seeing stories, African students and workers trying to get out of uh, Ukraine are being pushed off of trains. The government says they're fixing that, but I don't know. I think that's there. And I can tell you Bosnians are wondering, is it because we're Muslim? Uh, Yeah, I think American journalists have to pay particular attention to that. The immigration crisis, you know, there are going to be perhaps four million refugees. It's up to a million already. A million already. And early indications are that Gosh, the Republicans in America who have opposed immigration of most 
citizens in recent years. I want to be careful about this, but I think it's true that the Republican Party has been hostile to most immigration. Now, suddenly, we're seeing that, oh, we have to be... Uh, Interesting. Uh, yeah, welcome. How are Afghani refugees seeing that? You know, I, yeah. I, I hope that some of this coverage is making Americans more reflective of our own behavior. I doubt it, but it would be nice. You talked about language. When we invaded Iraq, we never used that word. I got into trouble at the newspaper I was at the time. I was made a career of getting into trouble for being outspoken, <laughs> but, but we, we kept talking about, you know, the insurgents, and I said, they're not insurgents, they're freedom fighters. If it were reversed, we would be fighting anybody who invaded our country. What is this language? And, and that was, you know, unpatriotic, and shut up, Rosemary. You know, people have to learn to see that in the news coverage. This is why, you know, we've talked in this program often about news literacy and media literacy. It is so that people can understand that the language that they see either on social media or in cultivated, edited content is potentially explosive. We need people to have some sort of a sense of literacy. And to that extent, there's great news that Illinois has just now passed a new law to make media literacy training required in the high schools of Illinois. This is great news. Ah, come on. I mean, you know, do you really believe that the American people are going to follow Rex's advice and get literate and start paying attention? I doubt if you asked, you know, 50 percent of the American people who the vice president of the United States was that they couldn't name her. So, um, so we're just supposed every, to give up so on every, it? Yeah, but Rex, I'm, I'm so, I don't want to use a bad term here, but tired of your telling us about how we have to <laughs> become... <laughs> Become more. Let's just step aside. Literally. Yeah. So uh, well, Go ahead, throw Judy. a monkey wrench into the discussion. It was a few days after the war, a week into the war, the uh, Russian government, Mr. Putin's government, decided to send a lesson out to all the school children in Russia, you know, using the euphemistic terms to describe the invasion. I think they mm. described it as a peacekeeping mission. And part of their discussion was a media literacy component that was trying to tell them what was true and what was fault. And so it can be used for very bad ends, especially if the basic underlying premise is evil. Well, no question. It's called propaganda. And you don't think we should train people to be able to helpfully spot it? Oh, no, no, no. You you get me wrong, Rex. Um, I certainly think that we should do all we can in the schools and everywhere else to train people about literacy and social studies. You just started hearing me talk about it. Yeah, right. I I spent my life doing that so far. You know, it is increasingly difficult, even for those of us trained in the media, to discern between advertising and propaganda and fake news and real news. The techniques of the real thing have now been appropriated by all the other bad players. So this is training, and media literacy is that, not exactly, you know, who is the vice president. That's needed, too, though, Alan. No, 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 I was just trying it's, to make yeah, a point I know, about I what under, people know. I, I, I know, and we did let it go because we were thinking that fact-based information, like who is the vice president, is more important than understanding the messages coming at you. We've paid a price for that. We have a public that's very unsophisticated well, now about messages. coming. They have no attention span, no patience, well, and all the stuff coming at them, they can't interpret. I'll shut up now. No, Sorry. you don't oh, have to shut up. Oh. <laughs> but I have been watching our coverage of all the people who have been commenting on this particular war that is going on. And while I appreciate it and agree with it, 
I often wonder whether there's not some kind of a propagandistic element to all of this that even our news people know better than to cross some lines. What do you mean? Propagandistic in the sense of our government, you mean, of course? No, I uh, mean in terms of, I think this is one where, and I've never seen anything like it, where everybody is on board with criticizing Putin the way that they are and the Russians. Now, I happen to agree with it, but I also, you know, with my training and anything else, say, this is really interesting that there's no other sideism here. Mm-hmm. Is there a responsibility on the part of the American media then to present Putin's point of view? You know, wasn't that actually yes. being done before the invasion by Tucker Carlson? Wasn't he the guy who said, why is America standing no, for he Ukraine? No, he was just cheering him on for political reasons. There is actually another side, and, and I do think it is coming up. Fiona Hill talks about this. What he's doing is not right. I am not Tucker Carlson. But his fears about security, about NATO expansion, those are all real. It's part of America thinks everything it does is right and the rest of the world is wrong. But we did encircle him. Remember how we felt in 63, anybody here, when there were missiles 90 miles off of our mm. coast, Russian missiles? We did not react well. In fact, didn't we act a lot like Putin? And there's a lot of Russians in Russia who believe what Putin is saying. Well, it's all they're getting. They're only getting, though, the propaganda. That's it's the inter- point. There isn't a free press. Well, there isn't, and I agree with you. But among the Russian people, there seems to be an appreciation for his lies or for what he is saying. And, of course, there are some who are raising a little hell and being dragged off to jail. We know that. But I think there's an acceptance of the logic of Putin's arguments by many Russians. That is true. The editor of Novoya Gazeta, one of the few independent voices in Russia, won the Nobel Peace Prize this year. And he is at great risk to himself and his reporters reporting on the war and putting out the real story. And that is getting out. The opposition is rallying, saying, don't believe everything you're, you're hearing on state mm-hmm. TV. Do not listen. Just It is getting out. Remember, the Russians have decades of trying to get around their government, of knowing that they're sure. being fed a line. I think the word is going to get it's just the world is too connected now there's a movement afoot for people to use vpas which is more technical than i can understand but they could go through for example my computer and get into western sources without anybody in russia knowing that they were there people are smart now mm-hmm. well not all people are smart no That's you know and radio is important too i mean it's one of the forms of communication that the government really can't interfere with except in russia where they shut down the last independent radio station echo in recent days and so even newspapers can be a valuable source of information. Digital has its advantages. You're able to reach a large number of people at a single time, but it has its downfalls in, in, in the fact that people come, come in and shut it down. Mm-hmm. By the way, you were talking about these false images that people see. It's hard to tell. You know, I think we will see, as uh, artificial intelligence takes wing, a lot of sorting that will be done for journalists that will be helpful. Actually, there are professors at the University of Albany who do research into detecting fake photography and how you can tell something that has been edited to look fake. And I think that as programs are written so that artificial intelligence can do that, we will be able to very quickly specify that this photo that has come across the desk is not real. This has been altered. This one is valid. And that kind of stuff, because every image carries metadata, that's going to 
actually make real journalism more valuable because there will be people who will be able to make judgments, and we should be asking the social media platforms to do the same thing. I, I saw Rosemary frown. Well, I think that's the hopeful vision. Yeah. The, the dismal vision is AI is going to make fake news really easy to produce, and it's going to well, look more real than ever. Yeah, I guess that's true because the voices can be made to mimic voices. <laughs> I mean, you actually have Nancy Pelosi's own voice saying ridiculous things. That yeah, or they slowed, they've slowed it down mm -hmm. so it sounds like she's drunk or impaired yeah. oh just yeah scary stuff is happening you know it can be as simple as using your your eyes because when uh, Vladimir Putin signed the order declaring Crimea an independent state people out there on social media looked at the wrist scratches on of everybody and they noticed that the sequence in which he had done this was not at all the sequence in which uh, right. he, he proposed it and it was just a matter of looking at the wrist watches which I assume that no one will be able to wear at Kremlin meetings anymore <laughs> right Sit at your jumbo table with no wristwatches. This is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. If you want to offer your thoughts, media at wamc.org is the email address. Alan Chartok is here, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith, and we thank you for joining us. Here's an interesting point of view coming from Steve Waldman, who is one of the great thinkers about uh, the structure of journalism these days. He used to be chief of staff at the FCC and has written several major studies of the structure of journalism, including advocacy for more aggressive not-for-profit journalism across the country a decade ago that has actually been influential because that's where journalism is growing these days. He says that what we need is about 50,000 local journalists to be hired. In 2004, there were about 71,000 people in newspapers, uh, in newsrooms in newspapers, and since then about half those jobs are gone. So you need about 50,000 because a lot of the jobs in newsrooms are people uh, designing pages and doing sort of the technology. They are considered newsroom staff. Imagine adding 50,000 local reporters. And why wouldn't we try to undertake such a process as that? Mm -hmm. Well, this is capitalism. Things happen not because Rex Smith is telling us, you know, this would be the right thing to do. Things happen because there's a profit in it or, you know, you had just mentioned the move towards not-for-profit journalism. And we let it go by, but I don't know that it's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that it's really true. What? What's that? There is a move toward not-for-profit journalists. Is there really growing? Yeah, there are hundreds of them now around the country, and you yourself. I mean, it's kind of interesting that here you are, the great exemplar of capitalism, when you're running a not-for-profit newsroom yourself. Wait, wait, don't put words in my mouth. You get the tax benefits. Wait, Rex Smith. Don't put words in my mouth. This is not capitalism. We were here for a long time, and we're doing our best. But if you take a look at what motivates Americans, it's still profit, and it's going to be profit for a while. That involves the media, too. So you can cherry-pick a few things here and there that are examples of not-for-profit journalism. But that ain't the way it is right now. Yeah, but the old newspapers were profitable, just not profitable enough That's by right. Wall Street standards. And unfortunately, the valuable services that they did perform have been denigrated and overlooked. So well, you know, it's 50, always... 50,000 so, reporters would be fabulous. It's so interesting that, yes, it would be. I've often said would and schmud mm -hmm. are two ancillary terms. The money, the money that we would save in corruption busted and bad yeah. people put away would be worth it. But that ain't what's happening, right? But it could. It could. Oh, I mean, there's no reason for it not to, for us to begin to give the kind of tax incentives that you enjoy here, to spread them around so that we I'm can actually I'm all for it, encourage. but not when the publisher of 
let's just say a major <laughs> Albany newspaper, <laughs> a major Albany newspaper is going to profit from but, all of this. But think about it, Alan. We don't. Yeah. We use private enterprise to build highways and bridges in this country. They are subsidized, if you want to use that word, by taxpayers. So what's the difference between that? You know, those people who are building your highways are not government employees. You and I will fight this till we're under the grass. He's, um, he's and, pretty eloquent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we will fight, of course. All you journalists would love the public purse to support American journalism, but that's not what's going to happen because... If it happens, there are so many things that could go wrong, Rosemary. You know, the idea that if somebody is getting money from the government, do you really, and you're an expert in what goes on in these other countries, do you really think the press will be as free as it was before that I really think that the public would be very well served if its purse was used to invest in gathering news rather than buying, say, weaponry. Yeah. I I have nothing but respect for you, but you're wrong. You know, Um, Big Bird has been echoing the government line for years, hasn't he? And there's an example of not-for-profit subsidization by the government. What would PBS be if it didn't have the taxpayer support? Will he be like Ted Cruz? Will he? Well, well, I have been perfectly willing here at WAMC to find out. You know, I don't want to beat up on Alan. And I don't want to make him mad at me. But, I mean, any any kind of revenue the media is beholding to, when a subscriber would call and complain, they pay me money for their newspaper, so I have to listen to them. If Microsoft pays, you know, a million dollars to NPR, does that mean that an NPR or anybody who gets the money will tiptoe around a Microsoft store? No, no, tiptoe around the tulips. I hear you. That worries me all the time. That very thing worries me a great deal. And the fact that NPR in its morning things, as you hear all the time. NPR or any nonprofit. Yeah. Always has to say is a supporter of National Public Radio. That's Uh, publicly divulging where your sources of money are. Well, but publicly divulging doesn't really do it as far as I'm concerned. So they should, let me get this straight. So Microsoft should not give money to public radio. Or else public radio should not report on Microsoft. Which one is it? I do not think that's true at all. You know, Rex, my training is as a political scientist. And one of the things we, we, we scientists try to look at is the way things are actually done. Ah. And I got to tell you, every time I hear that apologia on NPR, for example, we take money from this one or that one, I think they're covering their tracks. But my point is, is it really doesn't matter whether it's a dollar or a million dollars, that anytime you take money, you get revenue from a source, does that affect your coverage? And I'm saying- Damn right. I'm saying the same kind of thought would go into newspapers or any kind of media taking money from the public as nonprofits, that that kind of calculus goes into- Remember the control grocery stores and auto dealers had over newspapers Mm, because all their advertising dollars came from them? It's the same sort of pressure, and you stand up to them just as you would stand up. Some do and some don't. Right. And we'd Depending be in the on same boat. Marginal. But if you had 50,000 exactly. more journalists, there'd be a lot more who could go, and you'd still have better coverage than we do now. Well, so we're arguing about whether there should be 50,000 more journalists. Very well, nice. we're not arguing about that. We want that. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, one of the reasons I love being on this show is because you guys are so pathetic. Uh, you, Seriously. You, he just called us you're pathetic. Just, uh, always, you are always defending the indefensible, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, we're defending the you, pockets, Alan. We're trying to say that you. I think this is a new law. 
<laughs> Name calling, you know. I'd Words say. matter. And we just talked about this at the beginning of the show. Pathetic. I tell you. Oh, this is the pathos. Oh, dear. Anyway, we would welcome your thoughts, ladies and gentlemen, about this. Finally this week, Serena Williams. There's wow. a business article in the New York Times about Serena Williams, about this new angel investment fund that she is leading. Unfortunately, the Times in print publishes a photograph of Venus Williams. Now, this is a mistake. People make mistakes all the time in every line of work. Isn't it emblematic, though, of one of the problems that we have in journalism? Or is it just in society? Are we simply reflecting society that we have only a certain number of famous black women in America? And so, my gosh, of course we get them confused. It's just, it's a tragic situation, you know? Well, it's indefensible. And yes, it's happened in every newsroom. I worked in a newsroom where they put a picture of FDR instead of LBJ. And this is in Florida where all the old people actually remember FDR. So you can imagine my phone calls that day. But this this is so, such a point of pride and anger among African-Americans. It's an unforgivable mistake. And aren't we seeing a lot of unforgivable mistakes from the New York Times since they got rid of their copy desk? Mm, a very good point. Absolutely so. But it's not unusual. KTLA, for example, a big uh, Los Angeles television station, had to apologize to Samuel L. Jackson after they interviewed him and thought that he was Lawrence Fishburne. They actually yeah. talked to him. You know, I'd be interested in the uh, the New York Times bad photo caption, whether or not the original photo was incorrect or whether or not it was sloppiness on the part of whoever put the page together. Ah, uh, that's the next editor's inquiry. Okay, we're out of time. No. <laughs> sorry. Gotta let it go. I'm so sorry. Head should roll at any event. <laughs> Head should roll, TK. All right, Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude, especially to our producer, Dave Gostina, and to you folks for joining us this week on The Media Project. Funny Wall Street never has complained Ah, but publishers have worries For publishers must go To working folks for readers And to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people It could be prostitution, I don't know Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation Ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising Get those readers, get that payoff What a headache, what a mess Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>